0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we've got a lot to talk about this week, including the love of God, what is synodality anyway, why the Latin Mass, and, uh, and much more. So I'm just going to jump right in with the readings for the upcoming Sunday in the uh, extraordinary form with the epistle for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, taken from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. Brethren, I, a prisoner in the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation in which you are called, with all humility and mildness, with patience, supporting one another in charity, careful to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, as you are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. So the words of St. Paul, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. These words of the apostle to the Gentiles show clearly that it does matter what faith or religion we profess. Although in our days there's so little faith, we, we often hear, the assertion, even from highly educated people, that it's all the same, whatever religion you belong to, that, that you can be saved in any religion, so long as you, you know, love God and, and live rightly. Now, of course, to a traditional Catholic, this assertion is nonsense. But when such a statement is made by uh, a, someone who claims to be Catholic, it becomes a grave sin. Our faith teaches that there is but one God, and this one God sent only one Redeemer. And this one Redeemer has preached but one doctrine, and he has established but one church. Had God willed that there should be more than one church, then Christ would have founded them. (laughs) Or really, he would have not preached his doctrine at all, or or bothered to establish the Christian church, because uh, the Jews already believed in one God. But Jesus fulfilled Judaism, and he cast aside paganism precisely by founding his church. Nowhere does he speak of churches, but always of one church. He says we must hear this church, and does not add that if we will not hear this church, we can hear some other. He speaks only of one shepherd, one flock, and one fold, into which all men are to be brought. In the same manner, he speaks always of one kingdom upon earth, as there is only one kingdom in heaven, of only one master of the house and one family, of one field and one vineyard, meaning his church. He spoke of one rock upon which he would build his church. And on the last day before his death, he fervently prayed to the heavenly father that all who believe in him might be and remain one as he and the father are one. After his resurrection and before his ascension, he gave his disciples the express command to preach the gospel to all nations and to teach them all things whatsoever he had commanded them. This command, uh, the, the Great Commission, the apostles carried out exactly everywhere. They preached one and the same doctrine, establishing in all places Christian communities, which were all united in the bond of the same faith. Their principal care was to prevent schisms in the faith. And time and time again, they warned the faithful against heresy. They commanded all originators of such heresies to be avoided and anathematized all those who preached a different gospel from theirs. And, you know, as did the apostles, so did their successors. All the Holy Fathers, well, uh, generally speaking up until perhaps up until very recently, all the Holy Fathers spoke with zeal and love about the necessity, or the necessary unity of faith, and denied all claim to salvation to those who remain knowingly in schism and separation from the true church of Christ. Scripture and tradition form one deposit of faith, and they speak with one voice that there can be only one church. Now, if there is only one true church, it naturally follows that in her alone can salvation be obtained, and therefore the assertion that we can be saved by professing any creed is simply false. Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, speaks of only one church which we must hear if we wish to be saved. He who does not hear the church, he says, should be considered as a heathen and a publican. He speaks furthermore of one fold and he promises eternal life only to those sheep who belong to this fold, who obey the voice of the good shepherd and feed in his pasture. The apostles were so thoroughly convinced that only the one true church could guide us to salvation that they all died rather than deny it. In Hebrews 11.6, St. Paul writes, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this faith, he teaches the Ephesians in our reading today, is only one. If the apostles had believed that we could be saved in any religion, they would certainly not have contended so strenuously for unity. They would not have declared uh, so solemnly that we should belong, not belong to any other than to Christ alone, and that we must receive and obey his doctrine. As the apostles taught, so did their successors and all the fathers of the church. They agree that there is no salvation outside the church. St. Cyprian said, if anyone outside Noah's Ark could find safety, then also will one outside the church find salvation. And from this, it follows that there's only one true church which ensures salvation, without which no one can be saved. Now this axiom of St. Cyprian extra ecclesia nulla salis, outside the church, no salvation, was confirmed as infallible doctrine by the councils of Ephesus and of Trent. However, it's one of the least well-understood doctrines. And the church, you know, subsequently issued clarifications in the, the 18th, and then again in the 19th, and then again in the 20th century, and most recently in 2001 with Dominus Jesus, which once again confirmed the doctrine but with the understanding that it doesn't mean that all non-Catholics are going to hell. St. Thomas Aquinas uh, said that God communicates to every person the grace necessary for salvation. So how is it then that extra ecclesia nulla is to be properly understood? Well, the answer is in the way that it has always been presented by the official catechisms by the ordinary magisterium, that the Lord Jesus established the one Catholic Church as the ordinary and infallible means of salvation. Those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Those are the words of Christ, and baptism is the means of entry into the Church. So, therefore, anyone who knows that the Church was made necessary by Christ, but refused to enter her or remain in her could not be saved. But even then, membership in the church is no guarantee of salvation. Uh, Salvation is to be attributed to the special grace of Christ. So Catholics should remember that if they fail to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, then not only will they not be saved, on the contrary, they will be the more severely judged. Yet it remains... Outside the church, there is no salvation, and the church of salvation is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, for she alone was founded by Christ. She alone was watered with the blood of the martyrs and the apostles and and the thousands of others who died uh, rather than uh, uh, deny her. She is the one with the four marks of uh, the Church and against which Christ said the powers of hell shall not prevail. Now those who fell away 500 years ago and those who have followed in their wake contend that the Catholic Church fell into error and no longer possesses the true, pure gospel. But if they are right, then Jesus might be blamed, for he established the Church. He promised to remain with her and guide her through the Holy Spirit till the end of the world. So either he would have broken his word or he wasn't powerful enough to keep his word. And who would dare to say such a thing? On the contrary, his church has existed for 2,000 years with the greatest and most powerful enemies being overthrown, Protestantism uh, divided into countless individual communities with neither visible nor doctrinal unity. And if the Catholic Church were not the only true saving church founded by Christ, how could she have existed for so long? Especially considering some of her leadership. You know, Jesus himself said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. So if the Catholic church were not the church of Christ, she would have been destroyed long ago. But she still stands today. Whilst many of her her temporal enemies have disappeared and will continue to disappear because our Lord says the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. He has kept his promise, and we have faith that he will keep it, notwithstanding all the oppositions and calumnies and the relentless enemies, including especially those within, the weeds among the wheat, the, uh, the false shepherds, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus warned them, uh, warned us of them in advance. And he tells us that they will be with the Church until he comes again. So you see, therefore, my friend, that the Catholic Church is the only true and saving Church. Vatican II called the Catholic Church the universal sacrament of salvation because the graces won by Christ on the Holy Cross are committed, or communicated, rather, to this fallen world precisely through his Church via the sacraments that he instituted. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with more, uh, including the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, when we return right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Turning now to the gospel for the upcoming Sunday in the traditional Latin Mass, the 17th after Pentecost, the gospel taken from Matthew 22. At that time, the Pharisees came to Jesus, and one of them, a doctor of the law, asked him, tempting him, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like to this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments dependeth the whole law and the prophets. And the Pharisees being gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think you of Christ, whose son is he? They say to him, David's. He saith to them, Then how doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So, when the doctor of the law asked Jesus which is the greatest commandment, he was hoping to catch him in some contradiction to the Jewish faith. But Jesus gave the answer that any Pharisee would have given. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole soul, with thy whole mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It come directly from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, respectively. But then Jesus turned the tables and asked them a question. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him David's, he saith to them, then how doth David in spirit call him Lord? If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Now, Jesus isn't trying to shake the Pharisees' belief that the Messiah is the descendant of David. On the contrary, he's teaching them that the Messiah is or has two natures human and divine. In his human nature the Messiah is the son of David and therefore his inferior. But in his divine nature, he is the Son of God, and therefore David's superior. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, David prophetically calls him Lord in the Psalms. Now, because of this answer, the Gospel says they durst not, that is, they dared not, ask him any more questions. Unhappily, even today, there are men who, like the Pharisees, deny the divinity of Christ, son of the living God. You know, they, they consider him instead merely a, a human prophet, a very wise and uh, certainly very virtuous man. But they do not uh, receive his doctrine, even though it was confirmed by so many miracles. Beware. Teach your children to beware of such influencers who would rob you of your faith and your peace of soul. And the consoling hope of a future resurrection and of eternal life. Together with uh, a life together with Christ our Redeemer. Rather, if you believe Christ to be the Son of God and our Lord, lawgiver, instructor, and Redeemer. Then follow his teaching. And do not contradict in your actions what you profess with your lips. St. John says, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And so the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. Now, what's meant by loving God? St. Bernard uh, of Clairvaux wrote a very famous treatise on this. And I have shared before um, the article about loving God from um, oh, Saint uh, Father Paul uh, O'Sullivan. Right, uh, who borrowed very much from Saint Thres of Luzo, who borrowed very much from Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. But you know, to love God, what does it mean? It means to find our pleasure and our happiness and our joy in God, because He is the highest and most perfect good. So, to rejoice in His divine Majesty and glory, to direct our thoughts, words, and actions towards Him as our only end. To do His will in all things and be prepared always to lose everything, even life itself, rather than lose his friendship. Jesus says we must love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, mind, and strength. Now, the different expressions all properly mean the same thing, namely that we should cling to God with a true, sincere, and heartfelt love. So by our heart may be understood our will, that power by which we wish God all glory and desire nothing more than that he be known, loved, and honored by all men. The soul signifies the intellect by which we should strive to arrive at the knowledge and love of God to praise and glorify him above all things. And then the mind may signify our memory with which we continually remember God and the innumerable benefits bestowed on us by him. Praise him for them, thank him, and always walk blamelessly before him. So intellect, will, and memory, these are the spiritual faculties of man. But we must also love God with all our strength. So that is to employ all the powers and all the capabilities of our body in his service and direct all of our actions to him as our last end. And so Jesus says we must love him all together with soul and body. And St. Bernard raised the question, is it true love if we only love God because he's so good to us? Right? If we only love him uh, for the benefits? And the answer is, this is love. This is grateful love, which is good and praiseworthy, but it is not perfect love because the motive is the good uh, to oneself it's it it's, it's self-love it's self-interest that's what motivates it but so what then is perfect love that's when we love god only because he is in himself the highest good and the most worthy of our of all our love in this manner we should try to love him not through self-interest not through the hope of some reward or fear of punishment but only because he, as the greatest good, contains all goodness and therefore deserves to be loved on account of himself alone. St. Francis Xavier expressed this beautifully in uh, a canticle. O God, I give my love to thee, not for the heaven thou hast made for me, nor yet because who love not thee will burn in hell eternally. In dying throes upon Calvary, my Jesus, thou didst think of me, bear the lance, the nails, the tree, rude scoffs, contempt, and infamy, and pangs untold all lovingly, the scourge, the sweat, the agony, and death itself, all, all for me, a sinner, and thy enemy. Why, therefore, should not I love thee, O Jesus, dead, love of me. Not that I may in heaven be, not that from hell I may be free, not urged by dread of endless pain, not lured by prize of endless gain, but as thou, Lord, didst first love me, so do I love and will love thee. To thee, my King, I give my heart, for this alone, that God thou art absolutely beautiful I think we could use a couple more Jesuits like that they say that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom but can fear exist with love well servile fear cannot but filial fear may servile fear is fear of punishment that's the fear of a slave and where such fear exists love cannot dwell for in love, as St. Augustine says, there is no fear. Or St. John in his first epistle, for perfect love casteth out fear. Filial fear, on the contrary, what they what the, the the uh the gift of the Holy Spirit that we call fear of the Lord, is um a fear of offending God, like a child towards a good parent. This fear leads to love and is an effect of love. It is the fear of Uh, this fear that is the beginning of wisdom. And we should cherish this fear, for it will drive away sin as sentinels expel thieves. It will replenish us with joy and gladness and obtain for us in our last moments divine blessings and a holy death. That's all from the first chapter of uh, Ecclesiasticus, the book of Sirach. Now, the way we obtain a perfect love of God is by regularly meditating on his divine perfections. So, for example, his almighty power, his his wisdom, his goodness, etc. By contemplating his unlimited love for us in the Paschal mystery, that is, by uh, the life, sufferings, and death of Christ. By frequently practicing the theological virtue of love, by fervent prayer, by making acts of love, like you find in a Catholic prayer book. O oh my God, I love thee above all things with my whole heart and soul, because thou art all good and worthy of all my love. I love my neighbor as myself for love of thee. I forgive all who have injured me and ask pardon for all whom I have injured. Amen. That's an act of love. The practice of the theological virtue of love is to will the good for the other. Now, children should be taught to practice the virtue of love Uh, and love of God, especially as soon as they've arrived at the age of reason. We should practice the love of God, especially when the world of flesh and the devil try to draw us away from God. Um, Whenever we have the misfortune to separate ourselves from God by mortal sin, when we receive the Holy Sacraments, especially Holy Communion, whenever we receive some particular grace from God, uh, when we use food and drink and other lawful enjoyments, And when we contemplate God's creatures, these are all opportunities to practice love of God, and we should do so often every day, and especially at the hour of death. Now, the commandment to love God and neighbor is called the greatest commandment because it contains all the other commandments. For Christ says, in it consists the whole law. He who loves God with his whole heart does not separate from God by infidelity, He does not practice public or private superstition or idolatry. He does not murmur against God. He does not desecrate the name of God by cursing and swearing. He doesn't profane the Sabbath because he knows that all of this is displeasing to God. So on the contrary, he hopes in God. He keeps Sundays and holy days of obligation holy, observes all the commandments of the church because God desires that we hear the church. He honors his parents, inflicts no evil upon his neighbor, does not commit adultery, does not steal, calumniates no one, does not bear false witness, does not judge rashly or or is envious, malicious, or cruel, but rather practices the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And all this because he loves God and his neighbor as himself. That is loving God with uh, the body and the soul. And that's no nonsense. Lots more when we come back right after this. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I've talked a lot about the new Mass uh, on this program. And especially its justification by Pope Paul VI, which was primarily that of understanding, that the Mass had to be changed and especially had to be put into the vernacular for the sake of understanding. He said, we have reason indeed for regret, reason almost for bewilderment. What can we put in the place of that language of the angels? We are giving up something of priceless worth, but why? What is more precious than these loftiest of our church's values? The answer, he said, will seem banal, prosaic. Understanding of prayer is worth more than the silken garments in which it is royally dressed. Participation by the people is worth more, particularly participation by modern people, so fond of plain language which is easily understood and converted into everyday speech. If the divine Latin language kept us apart from the children, from youth, from the world of labor and affairs, if it were a dark screen, not a clear window, would it be right for us for us fishers of souls to maintain it as the exclusive language of prayer and religious intercourse? Well, as William F. Buckley pointed out, if understanding is so important and the mere translation to the vernacular is hardly sufficient, he said, If clarity is the desideratum, or however you say the word in English, then the thing to do is jettison, just to begin with, most of St. Paul, whose epistles are in some respects inscrutable to some of the people some of the time, and in most respects inscrutable to most of the people most of the time. And what of the modern Catholic who is not so fond of plain speech, who's not a child, or engaged in the world of labor and affairs, Uh, Sir Arnold Lunn argued along with Evelyn Waugh and others for one, just one, Old Latin Mass each Sunday in the larger churches. He said that if the Latin Mass is only for the educated few, surely Mother Church and all her charity can find a little place even for the educated few. It's painful to recall that a pope in Rome whether it's Paul VI in the nineteen seventy or Pope Francis today, should join the chorus of Protestants and modernists and other enemies of the Church who object to what Paul VI himself referred to as something of priceless worth and the loftiest of our Church's values. Because the fact of the matter is the traditional Latin Mass is for everyone, and it always has been. Latin's never been an obstacle to the worship of God, quite the contrary. And it, is other, it has other benefits as well, particularly as a safeguard against sacrilege and heresy. Now, this has been challenged uh, primarily with the argument that the use of any particular language is in itself immaterial. But viewing the consequences of 60 years of vernacular mass, not to mention in view of the long standing commands of the church, it is by no means immaterial. And so, although I've done so before, I'd I'd like to share the words of Father Michael Mueller from his classic work, The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Understand, this was written in the 19th century. Because, as he points out, the Church has wisely ordered the Latin tongue only to be used in the Mass and in the administration of the sacraments for many reasons. The first, and this according to Pope Innocent III, Is that Latin was the language used by St. Peter when he first said Mass at Rome? I know that this is now a majority opinion, or a minority opinion amongst uh, modern biblical scholars, but so is the divinity of Christ, so I think we can uh, just move right past that. It was the language in which that Prince of the Apostles drew up the liturgy, which together with the knowledge of the gospel, he or his successors, the popes, imparted to the different peoples of Italy, France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Hungary, and Poland, etc. I will add that in consequence, the Roman canon, which is euphemistically referred to as Eucharistic Prayer No. 1 in the New Mass, is in fact the most venerable Eucharistic prayer in all of Christendom. Now, Father Mueller continues... From the time of the Apostles on down, Latin has invariably been used at the altar through the western parts of Christendom, though their inhabitants very frequently did not understand the language. The Catholic Church, through an aversion to innovations, carefully continues to celebrate her liturgy in that same tongue which apostolic men and saints used for a similar purpose during more than 18 centuries. And that's more than 20 centuries today, although the better part of the last century was it has faced marginalization and even persecution, and that from the church, amazingly. He goes on, unchangeable dogmas require an unchangeable language. The Catholic church cannot change because it is the church of God who is unchangeable. Consequently, the language of the church must also be unchangeable, Mass is said in Latin because a universal church requires a universal language. The Catholic Church is the same in every clime, in every nation, and consequently its language must always and everywhere be the same to secure uniformity in her service. You know, it's interesting to note that Pope John XXIII, the very pope who called Vatican II, right, Second Vatican Council, which routinely gets blamed for the new liturgy, which it never called for. But he said the same things as Father Mueller is saying. And uh, in a document uh, called Veterum Sapientia, for, uh, which came out in 1962, He said, for the church, precisely because it embraces all nations and is destined to endure to the end of time, of its very nature requires a language which is universal, immutable, that is unchangeable, and non-vernacular. Now, That was in 1962. That's the same year that the council opened. That's the year that he revised the Roman Missal. You know, what we call the Tridentine Mass today is really the Missal of 1962. And (sighs) How different was his thought from the thought of Pope Francis, who recently, as I'm sure you already know, co-signed a document with a Muslim imam that states, and I quote, the pluralism and the diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom, through which he created human beings. Now, uh, the papal apologists crowd uh, immediately ran to the mic to clarify that when the Pope says that God willed all the false religions as well as the true religion, what he really meant was that God allowed the plurality of religions, right? It's, it's uh, merely in his permissive will, right? That's, that's what the Pope is talking about. But I'm just a poor modern man from the world of labor and affairs, so fond of plain speech. So I expect, when the Pope is speaking plainly in the vernacular, I should be able uh, to be expected to understand what he says without any help from the experts. And that's the point, isn't it? Why say that God wills the pluralism and diversity of religions if what he really meant was that God only allows such plurality and diversity? And why use it without distinction in a list of diversities that manifestly are the direct, positive will of God. In Genesis one twenty seven, we read, And God created man in his own image. To the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So clearly, God positively willed the complementary sexes. In the next verse, he commands Adam and Eve to increase and multiply and fill the earth. So all human beings of every race and color trace themselves back to those original parents. This diversity is also obviously the result of God's direct will. And what of the plurality and diversity of languages? Mm -hmm. Well, the same book of Genesis in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, tells us the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel if you prefer, and how the plurality and diversity of languages is also something that God did not merely allow, but the direct result of his positive will. However, I hasten to point out that the variety of languages was a punishment. It's a consequence of sin. This diversity was inflicted by God that the human race might be dispersed over the earth. Therefore, Father Mueller says, Holy Church, the Immaculate Spouse of Jesus Christ, was established for the express purpose of destroying sin and uniting all mankind. Consequently, she must everywhere speak the same language. But why Latin particularly? Why keep the holy Mass in a dead language? Father Mueller. It is a fact well known that the meaning of the words is changed in the course of time. Um, that the meaning of words is changed in the course of time by everyday usage. Words which once had a good meaning are now used in a vulgar or a ludicrous sense. And, for example, the word gay had a very different meaning when I was a boy than it does today. The Church, enlightened by the Holy Ghost, has chosen a language which is not liable to such changes. The sermons and instructions, and in short, everything that is addressed directly to the people, are all in the language of the country. Even the prayers of the Mass are translated in almost every Catholic prayer book. So that there can be no disadvantage to the Catholic worshipper in the fact that Mass is celebrated in the Latin tongue, especially as the pastors of the Church are careful to comply with the injunction of the Council of Trent to instruct their flocks on the nature of that great sacrifice and to explain to them in what manner they should accompany the officiating priest with prayers and devotions best adapted to every portion of the Mass. So, notice he didn't say I didn't mention uh, hand missiles specifically, but prayer books. And the reason is that once upon a time, most Catholic, uh, common Catholic prayer books included the ordinary of the Mass in Latin and the vernacular. And then also one or more collections of private prayers arranged to correspond to the various parts of the Mass. So that rather than merely reading a translation of, of the prayers that the priest is offering... This popular method of assisting at mass allowed the layperson to offer his own prayers, often heavily indulgenced, and encouraged both mental and contemplative prayer. A practice that is almost destroyed by the uh, active participation of the Novus Ordo. All right, more on this and uh, and <laughs> other stuff too. Uh, running out of time here. We'll be right back after these messages. So stay with us. So back to Father Mueller and uh, the question of why Mass should be in Latin. You know, he actually says that uh, the faithful Catholics, quote, know perfectly well that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the self-same sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered to his Father on the cross, because both the priest and the victim are the same. Their faith in the real presence is abundantly sufficient to enkindle devotion in their hearts and to excite in their souls appropriate acts of adoration, thanksgiving, and repentance, though they may not understand the prayers which the priest is uttering. For this reason it is that the faithful, pressed by different wants, go to the adorable mysteries of the Mass, never thinking of the language in which they are celebrated. Now, I'm struck by what Father Mueller said about the abundant faith in the real presence of the typical lay Catholic. See, after 60 years of vernacular liturgy, 70% of those Catholics who still go to Mass do not believe in the real presence at all. And I have to wonder, can this be a mere coincidence? Now, I'm fully aware that the correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. I don't want to fall into the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is Latin for after this, therefore because of this, but but honestly now. Back to the faithful saying their own prayers at Mass, Father Mueller points out that people bring a variety of needs before God when they go to Mass. Some, he says, moved by the force of calamities hasten thither to lay their sorrows at the feet of Jesus. Others go to ask some special grace or mercy, knowing that the Heavenly Father can refuse nothing to his Son. Many feel constrained to proclaim their gratitude and pour forth the love of a thankful heart, knowing that, that there is nothing so worthy of being offered to God as the sacred body and blood of the eternal victim. More press forward to give glory to God and honor to his saints. For in the celebration of these mysteries of love alone can we pay worthy homage to his adorable majesty while we bear witness to our reverence for those who served him. You know, I think it's it's got to be the most glaring omission in, in Pope Paul's letter, uh, changes in the Mass for Greater Apostolate back in 1970 when he mandated the uh, celebration of the Novus Ordo. He speaks abundantly about the effects uh, that the changes will have on the people, that they'll be annoyed and and irritated and upset by the novelty. Um, But he counters that they are a royal priesthood and they're qualified to join in the supernatural conversation with God, although that was arguably better served by the traditional Latin Mass. But while there's all this talk of novelty, promises that the, the Latin Mass will not disappear, Latin at least will not disappear, because... Per Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, quote, the new rite of Mass provides that the faithful should be able to sing together in Latin at least the parts of the ordinary of the Mass. Although we know that there was no serious effort ever made in that regard. In fact, even before the introduction of the new Missal, when uh, uh, the very first vernacular Mass offered in Rome by Pope Paul VI, he didn't speak one word in Latin, and he celebrated mass facing the people on a on a on a makeshift table set up in front of the altar, and the faithful received communion standing. All the, this is 1965, four years before the promulgation of the new missal, and and five years before it was put into practice. And none of these things were mandated by Vatican II. And so he spoke uh, of. of you know, the novelty and the people and the and the the this and that, but there was not one word about giving glory and honor to God or to his saints. Not one word. And now a final word from Father Mueller regarding the disposition of the laity at Mass. Lastly, he said, Men hasten to Mass on the wings of charity and compassion. For it is there that they can hope to obtain salvation for the living and rest for the dead. Thus to the thirsty pilgrims through the rocks of the desert do the fountains of water appear. Thus do the generation of those who seek justice receive benediction from the Lord and mercy from God their Saviour. Pity those who know not this heavenly sacrifice. What a misfortune to see one driven from this Eden and yet do nothing to obtain the favor of readmittance. How unhappy, too, are those Catholics who, though knowing it, by their unpardonable indifference, deprive themselves of this exhaustless mine of inestimable riches. It is true that Vatican II called for the faithful to actively participate in the Mass. But I believe, I mean, certainly, in my church, this has been accomplished with the 1962 Missal. Almost all the people that that, uh, assist at Mass with me on Sunday make the responses in Latin, as Vatican II said they should. Most follow the Mass without difficulty using the bilingual miscellets that that the Church provides, which have the text of the Latin prayers on one side and the vernacular translation on the other. In fact, my Church provides miscellets that are Latin-English and those that are Latin-Spanish. And then they have inserts with the, the proper prayers, and readings for the vernacular for each Sunday or holy day. And and I promise you that with a little bit of practice, anyone, everyone, it is well within their reach to unite uh, themselves with the prayers of the priest. And as even Paul VI admitted, many devout people have their own respectable way of assisting at Mass. And so with due reverence to Pope Paul and the Novus Ordo, understanding everything of the divine mystery which is the traditional form of the holy sacrifice of the mass is frankly impossible because a mystery is by definition a truth that one cannot fully comprehend because it is beyond human understanding and that's no nonsense all right i don't know if i have time to do this or not but i'm going to i'm going to try anyhow I wanted to say a word about the synod of bishops on synodality. So a quick definition, a synod is a gathering of ecclesiastics, not necessarily bishops, but uh, ecclesiastics under ecclesial authority to discuss uh, matters of doctrine, discipline, and liturgy, okay, that under their jurisdiction. The synod of bishops, on the other hand, is kind of a a permanent assembly of bishops, although the the players change from from synod to synod. You know, they're chosen from around the world, and they meet in Rome every several years uh, to render more effective assistance to the supreme pastor of the church and a consultative body which is called by the proper name Synod of Bishops. Since it will be teaching in the name of the entire episcopate, it will at the same time show that all bishops share in the solicitude for the universal church. That's from Vatican II. Now, although permanent by nature, the Synod of Bishops performs its duties only for a time and only when called upon. And it normally operates as a consulting body to inform and counsel the Pope. It can have decision-making power if the Pope, you know, confers that power, but it still has to be confirmed by him to be valid. Okay, so if the purpose of the Synod of Bishops is to advise the Pope, at the end of the day, um, you know, he makes the decision that he considers best. So the upcoming meeting of the Synod of Bishops is quite unique because for the first time, and contrary to its official structure, that is to say, contrary to Vatican II, it will include voting members who are neither bishops nor even clerics, but also laymen and women. So it's not, it's not even a synod, much less a synod of bishops. And the word synodality, the synod on synodality, synodality is, is a word of, shall we say, recent vintage it is certainly not part of the Church's traditional lexicon, and you won't find it in a Catholic dictionary or encyclopedia. But it's probably well to know that the words uh, synod and council for centuries have simply been synonymous, and they're still interchangeable even today. Vatican II, you read the documents, and it repeatedly, or they repeatedly refer to the council as, quote, this sacred synod, unquote. So the Synod of Bishops on Synodality could likely be rendered as the Council of Bishops on Conciliarity. And conciliarity is in the Catholic Dictionary. That's the Eastern Orthodox concept of the governance of the Church, that it should be uh, uh, governed by bishops, uh, and it, of course, excludes the Pope in principle because they don't re- recognize papal supremacy, which is, you know, if they did, they'd be Catholic. <laughs> or it might be alternately understood as the Council on Conciliarism, which is, in fact, a heresy, the heretical theory that uh, recognizes the Pope but considers a general council to be higher in authority. Conciliarism started in the 14th century when things were so confusing then. I mean, things were so bad and so scandalous under Pope John 22nd that William of Ockham uh, actually started to doubt the divine institution of the papacy. And then, so, th- this opinion emerged that the Church in general is free from error, but that Rome can err, and in fact had erred, and had fallen into heresy. Right? Rome has fallen into, does that sound familiar at all? Father Altman, call your office. Okay? The Council of Constance declared for the superiority of the Council over the Pope, but that did not become a part of the Church's official magisterium because, not surprisingly, it never got the approbation of the Pope. (laughs) No Pope said, yeah, you're right. The council is, is, you know, has greater authority than I do. But conciliarism survived for hundreds of years, especially uh, under the uh, form of Gallicanism, until Gallicanism and conciliarism was formally condemned only at Vatican I. And that's the thing. You, you read about these theories because the church had not definitively spoken on the issue. Right? And so we have this a renewal of conciliarism in our own days by those who appeal uh, to a council of the a magisterium of the theologians or, or the false appeal to the, the consensus of the people of God over and against the ordinary and even solemn teachings of the church and the popes. And today that would include even St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And weirdly, this latest incarnation of conciliarism under the name of synodality It's not being used against the current pontiff, as in times past, but rather seems to enjoy his approval. Uh, And the danger that I perceive is that the Synod's alleged consultation of the whole people of God, unquote, could be used to justify the false belief that the immutable, that is the unchanging doctrines of the Church, can in fact change. Hence the Synod's inclusion of topics like women's ordination and blessing homosexual unions, etc., that have been already you know, uh, pretty much definitively decided. And so the question becomes, is it possible that the Roman pontiff could use uh, such a thing as synodality to declare that his hands are tied and that he has no choice but to change the doctrines of the church because the people has spoken, right? Not on his own authority, but the consensus of the people of God. Well, only time will tell. And that's no nonsense. Hey, next week... I wanted to, to to say this, talk about conciliarism, to actually uh, um, introduce the subject of how that heresy has found a new home instead of a cantism. So we're going to talk about that and lots more next week, God willing, here on No Nonsense Catholic and Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In the meantime, I just want to say thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.